Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the ACOG Task Force on Hypertension in Pregnancy Executive Summary. Hypertensive disorders complicate 5 to 10% of all pregnancies, whereas preeclampsia occurs in about 3% of pregnancies in industrialized nations. Hypertensive disorders account for 5 to 10% of maternal deaths in the developed world. Rates of perinatal mortality are also increased two to threefold in hypertensive mothers, and women with early onset preeclampsia have a fourfold increased risk of stillbirth. Ironically, Severe preeclampsia is a major risk factor, about 80-fold increase for iatrogenic early preterm birth. Yet, preterm infants of preeclamptic mothers have lower rates of perinatal mortality than gestational age-matched preterm infants of normotensive mothers. This may reflect the benefits of physiological stress among the former and the effects of infection among the latter cases. On the other hand, it has now been well established that mothers with the disorder are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. Agreement is universal that only delivery cures the disease. However, in preterm cases, the balance of the risk to the mother of expectant management has to be against the potential benefits to the fetus of in utero development. So there's still some management complexities despite the task force recommendations. All right, next, let's get into specific task force recommendations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The task force recommendations are far-reaching and address many of the clinical diagnostic and management conundrums described for preeclampsia. The task force consisted of 17 experts in the field who graded available evidence to better define the disorder and optimize management. One key conclusion was to abandon the requirement that proteinuria be present to confirm the diagnosis. Once again, proteinuria is not required to confirm the diagnosis. The decision reflects the growing understanding that the disease affects multiple organ systems and that renal involvement is not required for attendant maternal and perinatal morbidity and mortality. According to the task force, diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia is a systolic and diastolic blood pressure greater than 140 over 90 respectfully, occurring twice four hours apart after 20 weeks, with either proteinuria, which is defined as 300 milligrams in a 24-hour collection, or a spot protein to creatinine ratio greater than 0.3, or one plus urinary protein dipstick, or in the absence of proteinuria, new onset of any of the following systemic findings, thrombocytopenia, that's a platelet count less than 100,000, renal insufficiency, which is a creatinine greater than 1.1, or abnormal liver function, which is hepatic transaminase levels twice normal, or pulmonary edema, 
or cerebral or visual symptoms. Similarly, eliminated from measures of severe preeclampsia were massive proteinuria, which was usually defined as greater than 5 grams per day. Additionally, fetal growth restriction was also removed. This is because the extent of proteinuria does not predict morbidity and fetal growth restriction occurs commonly in the absence of associated preeclampsia. The new definition of severe preeclampsia includes any of the following. Okay, so here's your clinical pearl. Here are the definitions of severe preeclampsia. Severe preeclampsia included a systolic or diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 160 or 110, respectfully, that persisted, or thrombocytopenia, as previously discussed, less than 100,000, impaired liver function, or persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain that's unresponsive to medication, or LFTs that are twice normal, progressive renal insufficiency, as previously mentioned, pulmonary edema, and new onset cerebral or visual disturbances. The classification of the other three hypertensive disorders in pregnancy remained unchanged. That included gestational hypertension, which was defined as new onset of the threshold blood pressure after 20 weeks with no other findings. Chronic hypertension, whereas the blood pressure elevations predated pregnancy or occurred prior to 20 weeks, and superimposed preeclampsia, which was chronic hypertension with newly associated preeclampsia findings. Key management recommendations, according to the task force, proved to be different than years past. The key management recommendations from the task force eliminated the need for bed rest or the recommendation for bed rest for preeclamptic cases. Once again, bed rest is not recommended. Additionally, delivery prior to 37 weeks was eliminated in cases that were non-severe. And lastly, also eliminated was the use of antihypertensive therapy or intrapartum mag sulfate for patients with mild gestational hypertension and non-severe preeclampsia. Now, this recommendation to not use mag sulfate intrapartum in gestational hypertension or non-severe cases has proved somewhat controversial. A recent Cochrane review did confirm the efficacy of mag sulfate in preventing eclampsia among patients with non-severe disease with a number needed to treat of 100. Such therapy significantly reduced the risk of abruption also with a number needed to treat of 100. So, the decision, according to experts, to use mag sulfate to treat patients with non-severe preeclampsia is ultimately a judgment call wherein the costs and side effects of treatment must be weighed against the low but the very rare risk of seizure and abruption as well as maternal mortality. Recommendations for severe preeclampsia, including help, are less controversial. Delivery after stabilization is still recommended for severe preeclamptic patients with an onset at or after 34 weeks and those with unstable maternal and fetal conditions at any gestational age. Similarly, onset before viability should prompt immediate delivery. For affected patients between 24 and 34 weeks gestation, recommendations include antenatal corticosteroids, transfer to a tertiary care facility if necessary, and antihypertensive therapy for blood pressures that maintain or are persistent above 160 over 110. Delivery of these preterm patients should occur after the 48-hour corticosteroid window in those that are deemed unstable or have preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes, active labor, 
persistently abnormal transaminase elevations, persistent platelets that are low, less than 100,000, fetal growth restriction less than the 5th percentile, or severe oligo. That's defined as an AFI less than 5, or largest pocket less than 2. Additionally, absent end diastolic umbilical artery Doppler should prompt quick delivery. Now, a quick word here about fetal growth restriction. Although fetal growth restriction is no longer a criteria item for severe disease, it still is listed as part of the management criteria because fetal growth restriction in light of severe blood pressures should prompt intervention. The task force does still recommend IV mag sulfate in cases of eclampsia and during the intrapartum period for patients with severe disease. Such therapy should also be administered intraoperatively if a C-section is indicated. So that's a clinical pearl. Don't stop the mag just because you're doing a C-section. They also recommend magnesium sulfate for women with new onset hypertension accompanied by headache, visual changes, or severe features in the postpartum period. The cutoff for antihypertensive therapy in the postpartum period is 150 over 100 and it must be present on two occasions at least four hours apart. The task force endorses observing blood pressures in postpartum patients with even gestational hypertension or of course preeclampsia or superimposed preeclampsia for 72 hours in the postpartum period in the hospital and then checking it again after 7 to 10 days postpartum in the outpatient setting. Current ACOG recommendations are that low-dose aspirin defined of at least 81 milligrams per day can be used for the prevention of preeclampsia and that came out of the Task Force on Hypertension in Pregnancy. The recommendation was for women to begin late in the first trimester, defined as after the first 12 weeks, in women who have a history of early onset preeclampsia and preterm delivery at less than 34 weeks, or in women with more than one pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia. However, the college has expanded the list of high-risk women that may use low-dose aspirin to include the following. History of preeclampsia, especially if accompanied by an adverse outcome. Multifetal gestations. Women with chronic hypertension. Women who have pre-existing diabetes, either type 1 or type 2. Women with pre-existing renal disease who become pregnant. And women with autoimmune diseases, such as systemic lupus erythematosus or antiphospholipid syndrome. These high-risk categories actually come from the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, which are deemed high-risk women for preeclampsia and are now ACOG-endorsed. All right, as we wrap this up, so here's a final recommendation and the final pearl. Remember that low-dose aspirin, defined as 81 milligrams a day at the lowest dose, should begin between 12 and 28 weeks in women who are deemed high-risk, as just discussed. Although low-dose aspirin is not known to be a major risk factor for adverse maternal or fetal outcome, it is wise to stop low-dose aspirin therapy a week prior to expected delivery, and this is to reduce the theoretical risk of postpartum hemorrhage. Therefore, according to expert opinion, stopping aspirin at 36 or 37 weeks at the latest will ensure that the majority of women are not taking aspirin at time of delivery. Well, that wraps up our podcast covering the ACOG Task Force Executive Summary on Hypertension in Pregnancy. We'll see you next time.